As we um, touch into the depth of the practice, we um, for those of us, and it doesn't even have to do with length of time, we find that deep um, reverence for the power of mindfulness and acknowledgement. And one of the, um, the, in my own practice history, there have been many, many experiences where I hate washing my hair because it goes all over the place. <laughs> um, <laughs> there have been many moments when there's been the purity of the knowing. And in that purity, the natural connection or touch or knowing of the experience in a way in which the experience of whatever is being experienced opens up and doesn't just become a breath or something else, but becomes the passageway into the whole world, into uh, an unbounded um, experience of life. And that that can happen in in any moment with any experience, because that's the power of acknowledgement or bearing witness or using the word mindful, being prosaic and using the word mindful. I want to just acknowledge also that it doesn't have to be in the confines of this practice, that those moments where the mind knows something and just in an instant, and it's clear in that knowing because we feel it and we feel how it lives in our body, that something is opening up and that the opening up isn't just opening, but that in the opening something changes in the alignment of the body and the mind, and that another word to describe that is insight. Uh, Knowing into something in a way that changes something for us. And I experienced, um, I experienced an acknowledgement and a knowing um, uh, when I went to a workshop led by In the Process Work Institute, which was started by Arnie Mandel in Portland, Oregon. And I went because I mentioned to some of you who knew, but also those of you who know me, saw me that for a year or so, I actually taught lying down. I couldn't sit up. 
and they couldn't walk very far, and I couldn't lift a plate, that my back was severely damaged and I was in a lot of pain. And um, I'd gone to doctors and they said, get used to it, there's nothing we can do. And this one doctor was so unsympathetic that it, it triggered a something inside of me that said to myself, no, I, I'm not going to get used to it, in, at least in that kind of attitude. And so I decided to devote a lot of my life to healing. And so I went to this workshop that was about using physical symptoms as a spiritual practice. And there we all kinds of things and we're getting towards the end of the workshop and there were only 12 of us, it was great and each one of us had to come into the middle of the room and share what was going on with our bodies, talk about it or express it in a movement or something and I I, um, I, I was lying down I couldn't sit up so I was lying down in the middle of of the circle and the facilitator came and she sat next to me and this is the first time she did it and she put her hand exactly where the injury was on my back L3, L4 she touched it and she said of course no one has had your back and in that moment, that profound acknowledgement opened something up. And it wasn't that I could walk again immediately afterwards, but it was that the things that I did afterwards, like I was doing acupuncture twice a day, and I was doing PT, and I was doing stretches, and I was swimming, I was doing all these things, and nothing seemed to make a difference. But after that, things made a difference. All those things actually started making a difference. There was something that aligned differently. That's a small example of the, of the not so small actually, <laughs> an example of the power of acknowledgement when it's pure. And this is what the Buddha says. at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the way, practitioners, for the purification and the overcoming of sorrow, of lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So, in a different language, the Buddha is naming a path of transformation from sorrow and grief and lamentation 
to its ending, to Nirvana, which is named in other ways as the highest peace. And it is the practice of mindfulness in relationship to different aspects and parts of our life. So this capacity that is such a, um, a, a deep empowerment, unrealized some of the time and some of the time in little places realized for us, um, but this deep capacity for empowerment and realization that lives inside of us that we are calling into being over and over again because through its touch, through that knowing, when there are no hindrances, no perm permutations um, or obs of obscurations, and I'm going to go into that a little more, there is this great power that lives inside of us. And then the Buddha named one energy in particular that was an obstacle to the movement of mindfulness in this expression. And he named it as the second noble truth, which is the energy of clinging, of desiring, of wanting. And, um, and then, of course, the opposite of not wanting. And that interesting that that is the 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 um, strongest obstacle to this movement of mindfulness bringing fruition and liberation and in in um, the exploration of the energy of clinging there are four aspects named but just to, just to use a classic and traditional example, because it's, at least for me, it's been very compelling, because it's also a little yucky. And it's the, the example of clinging was, was given in one of the suttas, but I can't remember which, of during the Buddha's time, farmers would use coconuts to capture monkeys that were eating their crops. And they would cut a hole in the coconut when the flesh was still soft, big enough for the monkey to put the monkeys to put their hands into the hole to grab the softness and sweetness of the coconut flesh, but not big enough for the monkeys to bring their hands out with the coconut flesh in their fist. And even though, because monkeys are smart, even though the monkeys could tell the farmers were coming with whatever it is that they did with the monkeys, the monkeys couldn't let go. <laughs> and this energy is not only living in the monkeys, this energy is also living inside of us. And then just to be clear, 
we can't really own mindfulness as ours. Mindfulness is a universal capacity that lives as a potential in every human being, and so does clinging and greed and craving um, in human beings. We can't say it's mine, but we can say that it's living inside of us, this energy. And that when there isn't any mindfulness, we are caught in that wave. In the, It's like being in a river, you know, wading across a river and the current is so strong. We're caught in its current and it takes us somewhere. There are, there are four particular areas that are named as the places where we get caught by this current of wanting. And they are central pleasures and views and opinions, rites and rituals, and a sense of self. And, and we get taken through this current to these particular destinations. And I want to name again why, why it is that we can't actually claim the greed and the craving and the desiring and the wanting as ours because there is a cause for that. And I've spoken, you know, of that a lot in these last years of teaching, because as I've practiced, I've uh, come to bow down increasingly to the condition of ignorance that lives in all of us. Ignorance as the experience of not feeling whole, of not feeling connected to the land and to the place in a way in which we feel we are at home, not feeling connected to other people and communities in a way that we not feel, but experience ourselves as deeply embedded in community, on the land, as part of life in a way that feels belonging. And this isn't personal either. It is uh, expression of something that the Buddha could not see a beginning to that lives in every human being. So we can't claim it personally. It happens inside every human being. So we could say it's an inheritance and that different cultures live with it differently. That is true. So that in some cultures it's not triggered so much and not so alive because of particular cultural expressions. In this culture, it's triggered a lot. So it's strong, the sense of dislocation. So when Mother Teresa 
came to visit the United States, she said, even though I have picked maggots out of the wounds of those living in the streets of Calcutta, I haven't ever experienced the suffering that there is in the United States. And she was speaking to that dislocation, that isolation or loneliness. And it again is not personal. It is in each of us and triggered and exacerbated by this culture and then is lived according to our karma differently for each one of us. But it's there for all of us. Out of this wiring that is inside of us, then because It is like a vacuum. It's like a black vacuum that is terrifying when we touch it. When we go, when we, when we, when we, um, when we find ourselves in it, not touch it, when we find ourselves in it, then the movement to create safety and comfort makes sense that there is this grasping then for something to alleviate that kind of pain and that that grasping moves out in central pleasure. So whenever there is contact with one of the sense spaces, taste, tongue, pointing at my ear, hearing, (laughs) taste, smell, sight, touch, the mind is a base, and it moves out in, to experience pleasure as a relief. It makes sense, and I want to say this because this culture both triggers ignorance and then judges us for the movement into pleasure even as obsession and compulsion. That makes sense. And as at least for me, and this is, doesn't, isn't really in the teachings, but from my own direct experience, there is never ever a, um, a justification in judging ourselves for that dynamic. It makes sense. And the thing about ignorance is that in that movement, until we're aware of it and we name it, we don't know what's happening. We just feel in the grip of, no, I can't give that up. And when we're asked to, it feels like our survival is being challenged. So I now I know more why I hate being cold, because I found out as someone who experienced polio badly that one of the... the not the not the symptom, one of the consequences of that is a heightened sensitivity to cold. So, okay. So when I was married and my partner was like an oven, even when it was winter and it was like 30 degrees outside, she wanted the window open. And I was like, no, I can't. 
And she was like, well, I can't either. It's so bloody hot in here. And it was like, I just wanted something as simple as do we keep the window open or closed, right? But it went to something deeper about that those places that are uncomfortable, unpleasant, and how it became like a core, something core. And I don't want to dismiss that because I want to explain, at least through my own experience, why we find ourselves unable to be flexible. Because those places get triggered when we're in, when something, when something like cold triggers that that dislocation and that emptiness because it's so unpleasant, then it's like, then I'm in survival mode. So, no blame and no judgment. But how beautiful to begin to understand the dynamic. Because the definition of ignorance is a dynamic and a process where there is no love and awareness. The antidote to ignorance, the Buddha said, was the four foundations of mindfulness. This bringing of awareness, of bearing witness. And because I'm not going to go on that track, and love, but just to say, and love, or kindness, or compassion, that infusing the awareness with this energy begins to um, bring about a different relationship. So you know that poem that I love to quote from Joy Harjo about remember? Remember that you are the moon and the moon is you. Remember you are the earth and the earth is you. Remember to remember. She was saying it so beautifully that the remembering, the recollection, the knowing of mindfulness is the journey into knowing where our real home is. And so, um, you know, why I've been this particular retreat talking so much about the refuges and sustaining our vision is because it helps us to remember and give us the strength to understand the dynamic that takes us away from the path of coming back into the refuges and the home. So then this stickiness of clinging and the Abhidharma definition of it is the way meat sticks on a pan when you fry it very high. You know, even on a non-stick pan. (laughs) That stickiness, that's the stickiness of clinging and greed. And um, we've all felt it. 
we've all felt how it captures us in the same way that that coconut captured the monkey, that we feel captured by it, and sometimes even imprisoned by it, where it, there's that feeling of, I, someone said it in a, at some point, I know that it isn't serving me, but I can't stop. It's a powerful force, and it takes us out of the heart, and it takes us out of the field of awareness, and into uh, uh, what the Buddha calls suffering. Another way to talk about uh, this energy, I was thinking there's a kind of all, all kinds of ways, but have you ever walked somewhere really beautiful, like on a beach somewhere, and then you come up against a sign, or maybe it's on a mountain, and it's so unexpected, you come up against a sign that says private property, and it feels so wrong, doesn't it? Like, wait, this part of the earth is wild. Who the hell is claiming it as private property, right? And the same, of course, is of the ocean. You know, there are many places where they say if, when it's low tide that you get to walk on the beach because they can only claim the beach up to, you know, where the ocean is. So when it's low tide, you get to walk on that part of the beach. But even then, sometimes the fences go into the ocean and are claimed that that's private property too. And the same thing, how can you own the ocean? It is something that goes clearly beyond private property and ownership. And the same, of course, is true of our bodies, of our emotions, of our thoughts, and of pleasant and unpleasant. We to are part of that wildness of the ocean and of the land. And unknowingly, we keep claiming it as personal property. And in that process of being fenced off, we lose the relationship to the wildness and beauty of life. And that's what owning or becoming attached to or claiming does. And that's why the Buddha names it as the cause of all our suffering. And we already know a lot, right? We already know a lot. Because when we see other people <coughs> making decisions that harm the wildness, it hurts. Because we already are connected. 
understand, really, and I caught this in myself today, when I, in the group sharing, when I said, it's those people on the board, you know, who are dangerous, and I thought, oh, that wasn't wise, that wasn't wisdom. We're all dangerous to the extent that we have these dynamics of entitlement, privilege, and ignorance living inside of us. can't just point it to someone without pointing it back to ourselves. And so then, let's look, let's look, uh, just take a few minutes to look a little bit more in, in detail um, to those four areas. So, forgetting, forgetting that central pleasures cannot free us in ways that return us to the wildness of life. And so, being seduced by our, our uneducated paths into believing that this moment of something somehow is going to make a difference. And that's how I smelt, felt as a smoker. When I, I, I smoked a lot when I was young, and there were all these great ads of what it was doing to my lungs, and they started a big education campaign in England, and I knew intellectually what was going on. I knew, but I couldn't. I couldn't let go of that first hit drawing in that smoke and getting that little high in comfort. And so I, I want to acknowledge and bow down to that. That um, the, the depth of that dynamic and how much caring and presence it took over the years to heal that. Right? Just, and for those, I don't know who else of you in, in my age group when smoking was considered cool and we smoked a lot and then we were really addicted. Just how much it took, years and years and years and years. Yeah. So the addiction, even when we know it's hurting us, yes, we understand that. And then the next is uh, opinions and views. And that sense of, I know the right way. Oh, I, I am being so attached to the right way and to this is what I think is the particular um, um, view that is right view and if you don't agree with me you're a bad person <laughs> yeah that's been played out all around the world so it's it's a big thing you know that when we inhabit and own 
a thought that passed through our mind and put down the post. Private property, this is the right view and I'm owning it. And we know how the, the effects of being with people who are very um, uneducated, ignorant about that, that way of being in the world. One of the, one of the actually great gifts, oh, I belong to an organization in, oh, I have to stop because I really want to read this, uh, uh, something else. But anyway, so I'm going to stop there and just say, bringing awareness to the ways that we think we are right. Yeah. Putting that sign, right, private property, do not challenge. Yeah. <laughs> And, and views, and I just want to say that this uh, uh, views and opinions then flow to rites and rituals, which is this is the right way to do something. Like, no, when you're driving, this is the right way to go, which is the shortest way, not the most beautiful way. That's the wrong way, because drive, I hate driving. So, I mean, we just, this is, and then the whole big cultural thing of, no, you don't give blue to girls, you give pink to baby girls, and you give blue to baby boys, and this is what you dress bodies with genitals in this way, and this is the behavior. All those rites and rituals that we become attached to, that we put these posts around and saying, no, this is the way. When, who created that? There's no reality or truth behind it. None. It's just cultural customs, you know? Or like the incredible impact as someone who was a spiritual seeker at six but didn't know that language, going to a synagogue and all the women being upstairs and it's only the men who pray. That's a cultural custom. But they said it was right. But right attachments to rites and rituals. And that has, a, we know, a profound impact. And when we join into that attachment, then we're imprisoned again. And then lastly, the attachment to the sense of I. That I am me, this body is mine, these eyes are mine, my ideas are mine, all this is me, and I own me. This is what a very famous um, teacher, Buddha Dasa, said in a classic book that maybe some of you have read called The Heartwood Bodhi Tree. He was one of the most political of all the teachers in Thailand, Buddha Dasa. He says, the core of the teachings of the Buddha, he says, is all things should not be clung to. Whoever has heard this phrase has heard all of Buddhism. 
Whoever has put it into practice has practiced all of Buddhism. Whoever had received the fruits of this practice has received the fruits of all Buddhism. All things should not be clung to. So nothing, um, nothing, nothing in any of our experience, breath, thoughts, feelings, body, this is the whole teachings of the Dharma should be clung to. So then I wanted to read the story by Adrian Lefwich, and partly because it's a continuation a little bit from last night. So my parents were arrested. I want to read to you the cause of their arrest and everyone in their group they were in this group called arm and in that era they were um they thought the best practice to end apartheid was to show that the resistance had power by bombing pylons and they bombed the prison records room and different things like that. So it was an underground group. It was secret. And um, so I want to read to you how come they got arrested. And actually most of the act, most of the leaders of the activists of the anti-apartheid movement got arrested. And it's uh, due to this, um, what I'm talking about. It, so it's just putting it from theory into practice. I mean, into the... I have to take my glasses off. Do you need to take a break and stand up for a moment? No. No. <laughs> what is that? Do you need us to take a break? <laughs> no, no, I just want to make sure that you're that you're still being able to hold through. Okay. It was in the middle of a winter on July the fourth, nineteen sixty-four, that I was woken by the security police at dawn. The raid turned out to be one that was conducted across the country that morning. The security police had come to search for incriminating material which might connect me with any of the political organizations or illegal political activity that had been banned. About two years previously, I'd been recruited into a small organization which came to be known as the African Resistance Movement, or ARM. I did not know everyone who was in it, as it was organized in a series of insulated regions and cells, but its active membership... Oh, I don't need to go there, hang on. Its main purpose was to sabotage public installations, such as electricity, pylons, and cables, as a means of protest against the apartheid regime. It was careful not to endanger human life, and the cause felt right, and politically 
it seemed to be the inevitable next step. Its activities provided an outlet for the frustration and hopelessness I had increasingly come to feel about conventional forms of resistance to the apartheid regime. But I now have the uneasy sense that perhaps it was my personal needs that found expression in those activities, needs that had only a tenuous relationship to the politics of the country. There was excitement in the secret danger of the work, and I was flattered to have been asked to join the organization. Maybe membership of it gave me a sense of self-importance, even of worth. It certainly served to ease the guilt that I'd come to feel about growing up white and privileged in South Africa. Perhaps in striving to be ever more radical, more daring, and more risk-taking, I was trying to appear superior to other young men with whom I felt myself in competition. Without really realizing what I was doing, I slipped into a kind of danger for which I was neither suited nor prepared. So I'm just skipping to different parts because it's a very long article. So, um, so then, um, so then he was um, arrested, taken to the police station, the central police station in Joburg at Caledon Square, and then he says. Um, I had spent weekends in the cell before, indeed in the very same cell on one occasion, after having been arrested in demonstrations, but this was different. I can remember little now about the first two days except that I swayed between hope and terror. So they, they brought him into an interrogation room and um, they wanted to know about who was involved in the organization. Rousseau, who I know from stories from my father, waved the other security men out of his office, shoved me against a wall, and started to punch me in the stomach. He roughed me up with his fists, but it was nothing, absolutely nothing in comparison to what other people in South Africa and elsewhere had been subjected to at the hands of the political peace. Please. Moments later, the other security men burst through the door, wanting or pretending to want to have a go at me as well. They were screaming at me, but they didn't touch me. I slid to the floor by the wall, more in shock than in pain. At that mu moment, I knew for certain that the roughing up would continue until I cracked, and it was then I started to talk. Over the following days and weeks, they played the good guy, bad guy routine in the interrogations, and I knew and yet did not know that they were doing it. Slowly but surely, I spilled the beans. I gave the names of colleagues who'd been members of the Cape Town Wing, at first a few hoping others would go to ground and escape, and then more and more. I'm going to read the names of everyone I knew. 
Randolph Fine, Eddie Daniels, Spike DeKeller, Stephanie Camp, Tony True, Mike Schreit, Schneider and Alan Brooks. Then I gave the names of people in Johannesburg. I was to remain in solitary, oh, solitary confinement for five months, but I was undone in the first two months, perhaps even the first two minutes of detention. Any remaining ability to resist the urge to do anything, to get out there, to crawl, to beg, to trade, dissolved that night. Whatever remaining determination I had to stand by my colleagues, whatever commitment I had to doing the right thing, and whatever fear I had of what people would say or think of me, I simply, simply evaporated. Afterwards, I realized that I had learned something else that night. I'd learned that at the root of every fear I ever had and every fear I would ever have was the impossible thought, the horror of my own extinction. That terminal terror was at the core of all my fear and it had fed every fear I have had since however unimportant and each has seemed like a small reminder and expression of it. Many people in detention and under pressure make statements and many can be made to talk, but I was to do the worst. I gave evidence against my friends and colleagues at the trial in Cape Town and Johannesburg. My responsibility for face-to-face -face betrayal was by far the greatest. Having been at the center of the organization, the evidence I gave was the most damaging. And then he goes on to say that uh, Eddie served 15 years on Robben Island, Boris Hirsch, his son lives in France now writing poetry, was nine years, and he goes through how, how, how long people were in jail. I've often wondered why we do not know how we will react. Is it because we do not know ourselves sufficiently? Is that why we may sometimes act in a fog of self-ignorance and so get ourselves into situations which we should not be in and to which we turn out not to be equal? I've come to think that not all of the choices we make are as rational as we might want them to be, especially the fateful ones. Perhaps they're more like lunges propelled by deeper currents of animal fear, survival urges, aggression, insecurity, pain, hate, lust or hunger, which surface unpredictably and which can have the power to push aside all values, beliefs, morals, culture, restraint, reason and self-dignity. I see now that part of the life I'd been leading up until my arrest was a lie, 
not a calculated lie, but a lie all the same. I must have had some awareness at the time about the tension between the kind of person I was and the kind of work I was doing, but I couldn't have understood it. The fact is that the outer shell of my image and behavior behavior was false. It was a construction, a sustained act that arose out of feelings of inadequacy, a fear of being small or unnoticed or unloved, and a corresponding need to impress people. I'm sure looking back that I got involved with political action because political action brought with it certainties and status that I felt I lacked. But by getting involved, I'd got into something that started to take on a life of its own, and it took me further and further away from being able to either understand my own limits or to accept them. The personal, social, and political life I built for myself, although apparently successful, had flimsy foundations. When I was really tested as the person I had constructed and played, the make-believe melted away. And finally, why did I come to feel responsible for all that was going on in South Africa and seek to change it? without first taking responsibility for myself. Was this not my real crime, my original one, the crime of self-ignorance? And did not my other crimes follow from this directly? So when we talk about why this, I, I'm reading that as an acknowledgement of the profound blessing of challenging our own ignorance, and that when we don't challenge it, here are the repercussions. And having come from living in a fascist state and being involved uh, even as a young person in resistance to that, how important it is that we do this work of challenging our ignorance so that we don't contribute in ways um, that bring increasing suffering. And so we get to see the power and the blessing and the gift of this work, of more and more being able to discern what is skillful and what isn't skillful. Because as things become more extreme in this country and reactions become more extreme, that lifts up the need for the integrity of ourselves and our hearts and our minds. 
And that integrity then comes. What uh, um, from knowing, and this is what Trungpa says in um, what's the book called? Something Warrior. Anyway, Spiritual Warrior. One must develop the ability to know the situation. In other words, one has to develop a panoramic awareness, an all-pervading awareness, knowing the the situation at that moment. It is a question of knowing the situation and opening one's eyes at that very moment of nowness. And this is not a particularly mystical experience or anything mysterious at all, but just direct open and clear perception of what is now. And when a person is able to see what is now (coughs) without being influenced by the past or any expectation of the future, but just knowing the moment of now, then at that moment there is no barrier at all. Then that person finds a tremendous energy and strength, and becomes a warrior. And then finally, this is from a nun called Sangha, actually. I gave up my house, I gave up desire and hate. My ignorance was thrown out. I pulled out craving along with its root. Now I am quenched and still. Let's take a moment to sit together. May our devotion to mindfulness and loving-kindness transform all ignorance and the construction of false self. Thank you for your listening and presence.